Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's Monday. Has it been a rough day? Where can you go for a change of scenery? Why, the jazz scene. Let your host, Jury Sperling, take you through the realm of jazz, from the soothing and sublime to the sultry and sensational. It's all good straight ahead jazz, perfect for kicking back or revving up. Come away to the jazz scene with Jury, Mondays, right after Democracy Now! at 6 p.m. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for power boats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Boat Talk with Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning. It's uh, 10 o'clock, second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9, up to Bangor. Boat Talk is a uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval. And uh, today you have just one host, your old rusty anchor, Alan Sprague is here today. Mike Joyce is off on delivery, headed south somewhere. And Giffy Full is uh, entertaining guests off on a 10-day cruise. What an excellent time to be going out on the water right now. Great days. But anyway, uh, today I do have a guest with me, Ms. David Jordan, who is a, a former submariner and uh, has a company called Nauticos, who does marine salvage. David is going to be talking about uh, a lot of... Uh, Marine salvage, underwater, um, underwater discoveries, we'll call it for now. Well, welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Yes. Before we do get to David, though, I'm going to go through the uh, the usual sort of stuff of local news and uh, things that have been happening happening in the area. And of course, it is a call-in show too. If you'd like to make any sort of uh, comments, questions, we'll see if we can answer them for you. The uh, Number to call in is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. I'll mention that often because it's a tough one to remember. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you live along the coast recently, you probably realized we had some pretty big waves here. Unfortunately, it was a seven-year-old girl who was washed into the water about a, a month ago with her with her family. Um, it's. Uh, Always amazing how, how the, the strength of the ocean can uh, be sometimes uh, attractive and deadly all at the same time. If you are a sailor, you probably realize that rogue waves do happen. Supposedly uh, about one out of every hundred is a rogue wave, and apparently there was one that struck the shore near, uh, near uh, Acadia, or on Acadia, near Thunder Hole, and 
washed a bunch of people into the water, the broken bones and bruises also. Um, all I can say is be careful when you're around the water, folks. It's Mother Nature's a pretty powerful thing. Also part of uh, Hurricane Donnie is the uh, devastation wrought on the lighthouse out on Mount Desert Rock. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of it or not, but the, uh, the old building that goes right along next to the white lighthouse there is uh, pretty much got an open first floor now. You can look right straight through the building and see where some walls used to be. It's lucky it's still standing up. They say that the uh, damage there could be half a million dollars. It's, Structure is owned by the College of the Atlantic right now where they do a lot of whale research and that sort of thing out there. It's a pretty impressive sight to see the, the pictures of the damage that was done. Mount Desert Rock is not all that small, really. There must have been a pretty tall wave to go all the way up to the top of the rock and clean the little boathouse right off and smash the big building. But on the, uh, on the brighter side of lighthouses... Um, this weekend, starting Saturday the 12th, is going to be um, Lighthouse Tours. If I can find the right piece of paper, here it is. Um, the main Office of Tourism and the American Lighthouse Foundation have got together and they're going to be offering tours um, at 65 different lighthouses around the state. I guess it goes all the way uh, into Maine and New York, I mean, to Michigan and New York. Most of them are in, in Maine. Uh, one of them that's going to be open is the Bass Harbor Lighthouse uh, on Saturday from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. If you want more details on any other lighthouses that might be in your area, they're going to be having uh, open houses. Then uh, the best way to do it is to go online to the Maine Office of Tourism and just Google Maine Offices of Tourism. You can follow some links there to uh, Open Lighthouse Day on September 12th. Um, in Bar Harbor, there's a little bit of a turf war going on in Bar Harbor now, too. Some of the uh, fishermen are trying to get access to uh, be able to haul their dinghies out to uh, row out to their boats uh, from certain little, uh, we'll call them streets, little side accesses from the from the main street down to the water, and uh, apparently some of the new owners are denying access to uh, the fishermen to be able to get to their boats in the way they always have. It's a uh, it's a funny thing, you know, being a fisherman. You know, you're nowadays forced to mostly by economy to uh, to get a a cheaper house. You can't really live on the water like the fishermen did maybe a hundred years ago, and so. It's you. Uh, you're kind of forced to get access to your boat by any way you can, and being able, being shut off from your own boat is a, is a kind of a funny thing. It's kind of like being a farmer and not being able to get to the dirt. But that's kind of the way things are going nowadays. It is a uh, call-in show. too. here's the number again: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you have any any uh, comments, questions, or whatever. One other item that's been in the news too is. Uh, Teenagers sailing around the world seems like a kind of a new, new thing to do. I guess if you're a teenager, there's a 17-year-old name of Zach Sutherland who just uh, just completed his uh, circumnavigation, and uh, he was the first one to do it before his 18th birthday. So that makes him, I guess, right now the record holder. It seems to be there's other people who are trying to do that same thing, and what. What strikes me is there's also a 13-year-old, a 13-year-old girl named Laura Decker, 
from uh, Holland who uh, wants to take off and go around the world. And uh, unfortunately, some of the, well, maybe fortunately, some of the authorities there have uh, said no, put a uh, clamper on that and said that she needs to uh, be referred to a psychologist first before she's able to take that big jump. They're afraid of the, what kind of effect of being alone by yourself all the way around the world for, well, however long it takes, probably a year. Um, what kind of a psychological effect that would have on a 13-year-old? I kind of uh, personally think that anybody who wants to go around the world needs to have a psychological evaluation first, but that's another matter of opinion. If you have one, one 625 9378 is the way you can talk about your opinion of what it really is uh, involved with letting your own child, probably your own teenager, your, it's a good way to skip school, I guess, take off and go around the world in a boat. It's a big, big ocean out there. If you've been out there, you, uh, you can appreciate how, uh, how huge it is and what a, what a great undertaking it is to travel around the world by yourself. But we'll uh, go on to the main feature of the day and talk with David Jordan, uh, author of a book that came out just in May entitled Never Forgotten. It's about the uh, discovery and recovery of at least part of a, a sunken sub submarine in the Mediterranean. Sounds very interesting. Good morning, David. And uh, why don't you, uh, let's first back up and uh, give a little history of, of yourself and how you started this company, and then we'll go into uh, Never Forgotten. Oh, good morning, Alan, and thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here this morning. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to be an astronaut. That's how it started. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom would wake me up at, uh, oh, in very early hours of the morning to watch the Mercury space launches and, and the, the original seven that, that, that went into space. You, you lived down in Florida then? Actually, or no. Was it on uh, TV? No, I lived in uh, Maryland. I was born in Baltimore. Okay, so you watched them on TV then? Yeah. Watched them on TV, that's right. Uh -huh. And, uh, and it, it was very exciting to me. And I, I grew up being very interested in, in astronomy and in space. And uh, when I was young, I moved, my family moved to Venezuela. And I actually grew up, uh, spent a lot of my time down there. That happens to be an excellent place for kids interested in astronomy because it's always pretty warm out all year round. Uh, where we live, there was little or no pollution. You're near the equator, so you can see both skies mm -hmm. and some of the more interesting stars and other uh, astronomical objects are actually in the southern sky, so we never get to see them here. And um, it, it was really a fun time. And, and so I developed that interest in the unknown and exploration. When I finally ended up uh, growing up and going to college, I, I uh, chose to go to the Naval Academy, and thankfully they chose me as well. Mm. And uh, I decided that my way of exploring would be the ocean. I chose submarines. And so I, I entered the submarine service and um, served my time there. It was a, a, a very exciting time. It was a boring time. As anyone knows who's spent any time out on the ocean, you get a f major dose of both, uh, boredom and excitement. Yeah, it's, and it's, <laughs> it's described as 90% uh, boredom and 1% terror. Exactly, <laughs> and I, I use a line, uh, uh, something along those lines in my book, uh, because it's very true. Um, things are very episodic, uh, and when the episode happens, you better darn well be ready for it. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, nonetheless, for a young, you know, mid-20s kid to have uh, be the officer of the deck of a billion-dollar submarine was quite an experience. And it was also a good uh, opportunity because when I left the Navy, I had a lot of opportunities to work with the Navy in, in other ocean, ex- ocean engineering pro- projects. And I went to the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab down in Maryland and worked with the, continued to work with the submarine Navy and became uh, proficient in underwater navigation. It's kind of arcane uh, thing to be proficient in, but it's also uh, very interesting and, and it's a lot different from navigating on the surface. Oh, excuse me, but why, why would you say it was arcane to be learning underwater? Now well, well, most sailors aren't. Very few people sail underwater. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, from the yeah, okay, in the general scheme of that's navigation, right. yes, that's right. And and you don't have the, the the traditional kinds of nav aids or satellites or anything to help you. And for f- because of of other circumstances, I also became involved and interested in historical uh, projects in trying to locate uh, ships that had sunk in days of days past mm-hmm. when more um, <clears throat> primitive forms of navigation were used, celestial navigation or, or even uh, a more primitive means. So I learned those kind of what nowadays would be considered arcane subjects. Back in the, in the day, of course, celestial navigation was critical, but uh, now no one, no one probably has even seen a sextant that sails. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I've navigated for thousands of miles with a sextant and, and it works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The batteries never wear out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but um, one thing led to another, and, and I founded my company, Nauticos, back in 1986, and that was to both to continue to work with the Navy and expanding what we had learned in uh, ocean navigation and in underwater mapping into the computer world with workstations and eventually personal computers and helping the Navy to develop labs to to uh, do that kind of work. When I started, there really weren't PCs, so we had to uh, develop all that. <clears throat> and eventually, we expanded into more general commercial ocean exploration and got involved in some very interesting um, commercial or historical shipwreck search projects. The, the one that really kicked it off was back in 1995, where my company was hired to help find a World War II Japanese submarine. This was uh, a secret mission by the Germans and Japanese to supply critical war materials to Germany in the latter stages of the war in the summer of 1944, right about the time of D-Day. And uh, this particular submarine, which was known as the I-52, was carrying metals like tungsten and molybdenum and even tin and hundreds of tons of metals and it was carrying um, rubber, raw rubber, that was useful for tires and things that, the, that Germany needed. And it was carrying, uh, oddly enough, or it seems odd, uh, three tons of opium, which uh, was used to make morphine back then. So again, it was a critical war material. And <clears throat> they were uh, going to return, upon delivering this to uh, Nazi-occupied France, return to Japan with bomb sites, radars, other kinds of high-tech gear and pay for the difference with gold. So there are two tons of gold bullion on this ship. To, uh, to, make a, uh, to, to tell the whole story, which is a very interesting historical event, would take uh, a good hour, but the, um, 
the Allies were tracking this ship because of the code breaking, and they actually stationed a task force that flew from converted Liberty ship carriers, Avenger torpedo bombers, the same kind that uh, that that uh, President Bush flew in World War II, and they sunk this ship in the first incident or episode of a uh, submarine being sunk by an acoustic homing torpedo from the air. Mm. So it was a, a very interesting event, and they actually uh, recorded the sounds that they heard from underwater using using little sauna buoys on a wire recorder, which we found in the Naval Archives and National Archives, and were able to listen to the sounds of a 1944 <laughs> enemy submarine underwater, the weapon exploding, and the and the, the very dramatic and, and, and heart-wrenching sounds of a submarine sinking and breaking apart, mm. as well as the pilot's chatter and voiceover. It's just an amazing event. Anyway, we, we were hired to find this ship. Of course, uh, <clears throat> uh, some fellows were interested because of the, of the gold. And uh, we did locate it at a depth of uh, just about 17,000 feet and uh, about over almost 20 miles from where the Navy said it was sunk, but hmm. just right on where we calculated it to be. And again, this goes back to understanding celestial navigation and the means that were used in historical times to navigate ships and uh, as opposed to the, today's GPSs and things like that. And, and that kind of success got us some recognition and notoriety. You know, we were on Dan Rather, CBS News, and all the big papers. And it also helped us to really launch um, some notoriety in finding shipwrecks underwater. Um, in 1997, I got a call one day right around Christmas time from our Navy customer asking if we'd be interested in helping in the search for the Dakar, the Israeli submarine. Now, I had to pretend in that conversation that I had ever heard of the Dakar, because I hadn't. <laughs> but in fact, the Dakar uh, was one of three submarines that went down that in uh, 1968, one of them being the U.S. submarine Scorpion, the nuclear submarine, the second and only two that we've ever lost, the other being the Thresher. Mm -hmm. And many of us in this part of the world are very familiar with the the Thresher. In fact, um, I I know a woman down in in Kenny Bunkport, and I just spoke with her yesterday, who uh, whose husband was on the Thresher, and she um, relates some some sad stories of those times. Um, <clears throat> the Scorpion, however, went down in 1968, as well as the French Minerva, which very few people know about. And so, as I say in my book, it was a bad year for submarines. Yeah. The, um, the Dakar was an Israeli submarine, and the, uh, in 1960s, the Israel uh, was, was at war, and of course they've sort of been at war ever since, and maybe will be forever, but um, the Six-Day War, as it came to be called, was imminent in 1967, and the Israeli uh, nation was not only opposed and faced with the armies of the of the Arab countries, but they were also facing uh, hostile forces from the Soviet Union because of their Cold War posture in opposition to the Western powers. So at that time, there were as many as 10 Russian submarines operating in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, Israel was um, 
capable of fielding, a, a, as it turned out, a, a pretty uh, efficient and capable army. They could build tanks. They could build aircraft. Uh, they really didn't have the industrial capacity to build submarines. So they, with great uh, time and effort, negotiated an arrangement with England to buy three vintage World War II submarines from England and refurbish them to join the Israeli fleet to sort of counter the maritime threat they were facing. Um, now, uh, this, this is a story of Israel, but not really. It's really a story of sailors, sailors lost at sea, and, and their families. And when Israel bought these submarines, they were refurbished in England. And so the sailors that were going to man them, which were handpicked, they were the most uh, capable and, and up-and-coming uh, sailors, uh, officers, and young sailors in the Israeli Navy, and, uh, and their families went to England and spent a couple of years there uh, refitting the ships. Uh, some of these folks were uh, not even 20 years old. Uh, of, of the sailors that went on these ships, but they nonetheless were, were very capable. The, um, the time in Israel was spent uh, doing certain modifications to the ship. Now, these, were, these three ships were what were known as T-class ships in World War II. They were the most numerous British submarine and the uh, most decorated and gallantly served. They also, by I suppose no coincidence, were the most often sunk, and 13 of them were sunk in, World War, in the Mediterranean alone during World War II. Uh, but uh, they were fairly modern for World War II and continued to serve after that for some years. The, um, the first one was named, renamed Leviathan as an Israeli submarine, and with its modifications and modernization set off in great haste to try to make it to Israel in time for the Six-Day War in 1967. And uh, because it took a couple of weeks to transit the Med, and it only took six days for the war, <laughs> they didn't make it. <laughs> so, but nonetheless, they, they joined the fleet and, and served uh, for some years to come. The second one was originally named Totem. All the T-class ships began with T's. The names began with T. And they, they did quite a few changes. The, the ship had been already modernized by cutting it in half and adding a new section for batteries because this was a diesel submarine. If it was to dive uh, below the, the, the waves where it couldn't put its snorkel mast up and get air for its diesel, it had to run exclusively on batteries. Mm -hmm. So the extra batteries would help it go faster and farther underwater. The... Um, Still, the ship couldn't dive very deep. Uh, it was limited to about 300 feet uh, depth, uh, which is, the ship was almost 300 feet long, so that wasn't, wasn't all that deep. Uh, they also added, um, kind of interesting, a 10-man escape chamber uh, a d that could be sealed from the inside or outside and could accommodate commandos. So the ship could be submerged near an enemy shore Commandos could enter this chamber. They could seal it, flood it. Obviously, they'd be wearing scuba gear. They could yeah. swim out, do whatever their commando mission was, and then return, enter the chamber, and flood it and or drain it and get back in the ship without it ever surfacing. And they added um, antennas, electronics, sonars, and so on and so forth over the course of two years. Now, the uh, ship departed um, Portsmouth, England, 
the crew left with great fanfare. Um, the commander, Yaakov Renan, was uh, barely in his 30s, but he was a highly regarded naval officer. Um, one, of the, one of the officers, the, 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 known as the first officer, or the second in command, was named uh, Abraham Barquet, and his young wife, Hava, in her 20s, and their young son, Guy, had spent the two years in England with them, and he took them to the airport and sent them home. And she took an apartment on Haifa at the, in Israel at the harbor, overlooking the harbor, so she could see, right, be right there when he arrived. And they were very anxious to arrive home. Um, as a result of the Six-Day War, now the Israelis had access to Jerusalem for the first time uh, since the War of Independence and when, the, when Israel was founded. So they were very excited to, to, go, to, to go to Jerusalem uh, together. The ship... Con- uh, started in its transit across the Mediterranean. It sent radio messages every day. Um, it sent a position report once a day. Nothing out of the ordinary was, was uh, reported. Some minor maintenance, nothing serious. Um, there's some interesting messages. One of them uh, mentioned that a uh, Lieutenant Schurer, uh had left his camera on the ship and that it would be returned in the hands of another officer when they returned to Haifa. Well, Lieutenant Schurer was a naval photographer, Israeli naval photographer, and he wanted to ride on the submarine to make a report. And they said, well, no, you can't because there's no room. They had this ship completely crammed. Every spot was full. They were sharing bunks. There was absolutely no room. Sixty-nine sailors were crammed on board. No room for Lieutenant Schurer. Well, just before they sailed, one of the young sailors, w- who had a young wife who was pregnant, uh, was given leave to be with his wife for the delivery, which was imminent. And so he stayed in Portsmouth, and they let Lieutenant Shore on board. Lieutenant Shore sailed with the ship from Portsmouth, England, to Gibraltar, where they stopped. By then, they stopped to refuel. By then, uh, the young sailor's wife had delivered. Everything was fine. They sent the young sailor down to Gibraltar. They told Lieutenant Shore he was off. The young sailor got on board and never returned home. Yeah. Lieutenant Shore forgot his camera, hmm. which went down with the ship. Yeah, lost his camera. That's uh, the being a diesel electric. So was the trip was all on surface, or did they go underwater at all? Well, that's a good question. the The objective was to transit submerged all the way from Gibraltar to Haifa. Now, the only way they could do this, of course, was, was, was by snorkeling, that is having a, uh, a mast or a pipe that would raise up above the, the ship and above the waves so they could draw in air for the diesel. And the whole submarine could be submerged, relatively shallow, but still underwater, while the diesel could, could run. Did the diesel exhaust go out underwater, or was there a separate mast for the exhaust? Typically, the, the exhaust is contained within the same mass structure, but it's a separate pipe, and it mm-hmm. usually exhausts just, just below the, the water line. Um, one, of the, one of the problems with that, and as a submariner, I experienced this because even though I was in a nuclear submarine, we did have a diesel engine for emergency purposes, and we practically every day practiced using it um, in case we needed it. And uh, the exhaust will... Of course, even though you discharge it underwater, this, the smoke still comes up into the air. And uh, at the same time, you're 
drawing air in for the diesel, and if you get the wind wrong, you can suck your exhaust right down your intake pipe, and of course that's also ventilation at that time oh, for the ship. Yeah. So if you're the officer of the deck and you get the wind wrong, you can be very unpopular for, for that day. <laughs> yeah. But they transited submerged the whole way, either snorkeling or occasionally they would dive deeper on batteries mm -hmm. in order to um, uh, exercise that capability as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, another, so. another curious thing is that they were able to go quite a bit faster with this configuration, snorkeling with the diesel, than the schedule called for. So they, one of the uh, curiosities of the messages coming back were the captain asked to come in early. He, he was days ahead of schedule. And the headquarters in Haifa said, well, um, no, you really can't because we have ceremonies planned and they're set for this day. And mm -hmm. we'll give you a day, but that's all. So he was curiously way ahead of schedule for no good reason that could be deduced at, at headquarters. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and as I think I, I may have said, uh, one day the messages just stopped coming. The, the ship disappeared, it evaporated. So it left Gibraltar and made, what, two or three days worth of reports and then the end? Actually, it was, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how many days, but it was, it was more like 10 days of reports. It, 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 it still took a while. It mm -hmm. didn't, it's a long ways across the Met, and, and even with diesels, it couldn't go that fast. So it, it, it was a couple of week transit, and they were into the second week before the when they when the messages stopped coming. So was that your best clue as to where to begin to look for them? Well, actually, there was a red herring that 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 came about here. Um, <clears throat> the place where the ship was last reported, or where they last reported their position was in the deepest, over the deepest part of the Mediterranean Sea, 10,000 feet deep. Most people don't even know it gets that deep. And, uh, and of course, if the ship had gone down at 10,000 feet in 1967 or 1968, there was uh, really no way to, to find it. Um, the U.S. was developing those kind of capabilities, but Israel certainly didn't have them, and they were gone. And by the way, there was no oil slick or, or, or floating wreckage or anything whatsoever. Hmm. The uh, only thing was a year later, um, one of the orange rescue buoys that is meant to um, alert uh, sal salvers to the position of the ship if it happens to sink in shallow water, washed ashore on Gaza Strip, found by a fisherman and brought to the authorities. And it was, uh, first of all, the first bit of evidence of the ship that anyone had found, and this was a year later. And second of all, it was, uh, although it was scratched up and had a broken antenna, it wasn't damaged, and particularly it wasn't crushed. If that buoy had been with the ship like it was supposed to be, attached by a wire and gone down in 10,000 feet of water, it would be like a crushed can. So uh, the final bit of, of evidence was that the wire that attached it to the ship had been freshly broken. It still had fresh, uncroated metal on it. Couldn't have been broken for more than days or a mm -hmm. week at the most. So all this evidence pointed to the ship having somehow, maybe with the extra time the captain had that, that he was uh, ahead of schedule, had gone to a shallow part of the Mediterranean, run afoul of some something and sunk there, and then the buoy... Uh, broke off eventually and washed ashore in Gaza. So if the buoy could be found, the ship could be found, and the s families of the 69 sailors started a 30-year quest to find the ship. 
they made an actual organization or how how, how does how does one how do how do the group of families initiate this this process the the families of course were devastated uh well that's that's a very yeah. weak word to they use for, for for their for their feelings when when the ship was lost and not only was it just the families but Israel's a small country everybody knows everybody else and it was a national disaster it was sort of like our you know MIA uh 9/11 you you bundle them all together all the tragedies that, that's what they felt and and you can tell from interviewing and talking to those people what a what a national disaster it was the they wanted some closure. There were actually Egyptian submarine captains that were making boastful claims of having sunken or even captured the ship. So without the evidence of the ship's sinking, they didn't really know what happened. The buoy just made it more of a question when the buoy arrived a year later. The Navy, of course, wanted to know what happened. And initially they wanted to know for both for... Uh, personal and emotional reasons, but also for technical reasons. You know, if we, one of our three ships is sunk, and why? We want to know why. Um, as time went on, the families continued and became organized. Uh, in fact, the one of the organizers was uh, was uh, Michael Markovic, the younger brother of the engineer Isaac I mentioned earlier, who became, even though he was just a young teenager when his brother disappeared, as he uh, became older, he became a leader of the family's committee that continued to pressure the Navy to search for this ship decades later, even after it had long become not of military interest anymore. Mm. Yeah, and, and they, they remained a strong force. Well, we're uh, talking on Boat Talk today with David Jordan, author of Never Forgotten, the uh, discovery and partial retrieval of the submarine Dakar in the in the Mediterranean. Um, if you have any questions for David, too, you're certainly welcome to call in. one 625 9378 is the number into Boat Talk. So let's skip ahead to uh, when you actually start getting engaged in the real search. Well, as I said, in, in 1997, I was asked uh, to be a part of the of the uh, search. Actually, I was originally asked to advise the U.S. Navy on where to search for the ship. Uh, the chief of naval operations at the time had made a uh, promise to Israel that we would help them as a goodwill gesture. Mm -hmm. um, we happened to have one of our research submarines, uh, the NR-1, which some of you listening may know of that uh, Dr. Ballard has used in, in some cases in, in uh, exploring ancient wrecks in the Mediterranean, and it was uh, available. So we were asked to, having had a lot of success in working with the Navy on these kind of projects, my company was asked to advise the Navy on where the NR-1 should search. So I went over to Israel with a, with a colleague, and we sat with a committee of, of 18 experts that were assembled experts in naval operations, submarines, intelligence, communications, marine biology, meteorology, just about anything you could think of that had anything to do with this disaster. And people that had studied the buoy at great detail for years and uh, tried to ferret out clues as to where it might have come from, and uh, people that had led this uh, quest for, for decades. 
were involved. And here we can come a couple of, of Americans uh, with little background in this problem, and they looked to us for answers. It was pretty intimidating, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I say in the book, I, I had this image when I walked in the room, uh, if, if any of you remember the, the movie MASH, where Hawkeye and BJ come in to the uh, operating room somewhere and they say, the pros from Dover are here. Mm. And we felt like they were expecting the pros from Dover, but we sure didn't feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, in working for three weeks with that committee, <clears throat> we came to a consensus on a new approach than what had been followed for 30 years of searching. And uh, it, it, it essentially involved going back to where the ship was last heard from and developing a search plan based on that information and uh, not ignoring the evidence of the buoy, which was pretty compelling. But we came up with an explanation for the buoy that was consistent with the ship being on its, on its original path and not straying off to some shallow area. And that was all, it's all part of the story in the book. And I think um, uh, it, it was kind of a, of a very interesting uh, technical exercise. And, and those of you that are interested in, in mystery and, and sort of forensic technology kind of, uh, you know, CSI kind of stuff, there's a little bit of that in the book, quite a bit actually, as well as the, the how we did it underwater technology for the layperson. But a lot of the story is really about the, the people the, the family members and their quest, um, uh, which is quite, um, it's quite uh, dramatic. And sometimes I, I, I can't read some of the interviews without, without a, a tear welling up because uh, those people went through so much for so long. Mm. Eventually, we were able to come up with a new plan. Uh, the, the Navy's original idea of searching with the NR-1 uh, research submarine uh, didn't work because it couldn't go deep enough to search these deep areas of the Mediterranean. So two years later, we were hired on a competitive bid to run the search ourselves. And sure enough, we found it uh, pretty much where we said it was. Let's talk about the, uh, your, we call it your remote vehicle, or how, how you actually have this little mini submarine, I guess you'd call it. Well, we, we don't really call it a submarine because submarine implies there are people in it, and, mm. and uh, there are a few in the world deep-diving submersibles that can go to that depth, but they're, it's sort of like um, manned space versus robotic space. There's reasons for it, but it has different kinds of limitations and applications. What we use to find something in the ocean is, is a sonar because sonar... Uh, sound waves can travel a fair distance, whereas light or radio waves or anything else get absorbed very quickly. Mm. You can't see more than... than is this a, is it some sort of directional sonar? So you yes, it's what's called a side-scan sonar, right. and, it, and it forms very narrow beams of sound to either side. And with each ping uh, of the sonar, you create a line of um, returns and, and th rocks and... and raised cliffs will return more strongly than mud or flat bottom. So you get this di difference. And then as you move along and successively ping, 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 you create line by line, just like on a TV screen, uh, a, an image mm -hmm. of the bottom. And then you, you, you go on a long swath that might be a mile wide by many, many miles long and turn around and head back. Now, one of the 
it, it, we refer to that as kind of mowing the lawn. You, yeah. you cut swaths across your search area and you make a map. One of the big difficulties with this is the sonar, because uh, you want the resolution and the frequency doesn't go very far, goes miles, but not, not uh, if you try to do it from the surface, you would, it would be very crude and you wouldn't be able to see anything in detail. So you have to tow your sonar very close to the bottom, um, maybe 80 uh, or 100, 200 feet, something like that. So you have to have it on the end of a very long cable. And our equipment uh, can go down as deep as 20,000 feet. So to do that, you need a uh, almost a 40,000-foot cable. Wow. If you can imagine uh, uh, towing this thing along behind one you. One-inch cable or bigger than uh, It's a 0.6-inch yeah. diameter steel armored cable, very similar to what's used for telecommunications cables. Mm. Um, it, it Typically, they'll have a, a fiber optic core for telemetry and power, copper cables for power. Mm. Uh, but even a 0.6-inch diameter cable that long uh, will weigh as much as 12 or 13 tons. Wow, and a lot of drag, too. And a lot of drag, right. So you have to spend a lot of time whipsawing this thing around behind you to get the, the, the ship turned around, the, the sonar turned around. Must be a big reel that it goes up onto. That's absolutely right. Big reel and heavy-duty hydraulics, and this gear that, that operates this whole thing can weigh 40, 60 tons. Mm. The, uh, we will use a ship uh, of opportunity, that is a ship that has uh, the right kind of capabilities, a flat deck and, and adequate size, that's as near as possible to the place we want to use it, because ship time is very expensive, uh, yes. and uh, we'd rather find a ship nearby and, and outfit everything on that. Th once we have detected something, and and seeing detecting something on sonar is a little bit like having a a radar blip. You don't really know what it is until you look at, look at it visually. So we have a second vehicle that is uh, called a robotic vehicle or a remotely operated vehicle, ROV, sometimes mm -hmm. they call them. And this device is also dangled on the end of the cable, but usually straight down. And it has uh, thrusters on it or propellers to move it around in all different directions, lights, cameras, mechanical arms, whatever kind of devices you want to put on it. And with that, you can examine photographically, get up very close with a video camera or, or a film camera and, um, and, and exactly see what you have. Hmm. You, uh, you have a website, too, and I've actually I've seen some pictures on there. Why don't we mention your website right now? Oh, We're thank you. About sure. The videos. Yes, yes. Uh, there's two websites I'll mention. One is our company, Nauticos. And that would be nauticos.com, N-A-U-T-I-C-O-S. The book is called Never Forgotten, and it has its own website called dakarneverforgotten.com, all one word, D-A-K-A-R, neverforgotten.com. And you can see uh, something about the book and, and where, I, where I might be speaking next. Great. So you, you lowered your ROV on what you think might be a possibly good sight, and then finally the finally the light shines, and you say, oh, this is an anchor or whatever it is that you're looking at when you first see something. That's right, and what we found um, on the site was um, a, uh, a, a, an incredible, massive amount of wreckage, and um, it was total devastation of the ship. And the reason for that was when it sunk, 
uh, it was the hull was able to withstand a pressure of only down to a depth of only about 650 feet. Now the pressure, even at that depth, is is immense. Mm. Um, if you go down only a hundred feet, you're adding three atmospheres of pressure. So uh, 650 feet is a tremendous amount of energy that's built up. And when the hull failed, this energy was released all at once in, an, in a massive implosion. So the bubble of air that the crew was in collapsed in milliseconds to a fraction of its volume. Uh, whenever you, whenever you uh, compress a gas, like pumping up a bicycle tire, you may know it gets hot. Well, if you compress that much gas that fast, it gets real hot. Uh, we estimated thousands of degrees. Yeah. Only in moments, though, because then just as quickly it would rebound and blast out. So at, at that depth of six or 700 feet, we had this implosion explosion. The crew, of course, was snuffed out in, in a blink of an eye faster than they could blink their eye. Mm. They, they didn't feel a thing, I'm absolutely sure. And then the wreckage fell the other 9,000 plus feet to the bottom, and that's where we found it. Uh, mangled pipes, pieces of the two-inch pressure hull that were extruded like taffy into funny shapes. And if any of you have held a piece of two-inch thick steel, you can't imagine that it could be bent into little pipe-like shapes. Mm. It's an incredible uh, violent event. Um, we, we found the ship, but we were not equipped on the discovery to really study the wreck site. That wasn't really appropriate for, for that first uh, expedition. And we were hired to come back a year later and uh, do the forensic work, try to figure out why it sank and to recover any artifacts for memorial and also to try to recover any remains of the crew. Now we, <clears throat> we knew something about decay of remains in the ocean and we knew that uh, the, the undersea life as well as the chemical processes in a deep ocean consume remains very quickly. But to uh, really understand this, we engaged uh, a woman named Marcy Sorg who as a professor at the University of Maine here, and she uh, is an expert in marine forensic pathology. And she helped us devise tests to uh, chemical tests, soil samples, all kinds of, of ways to detect any evidence whatsoever of remains or even the decaying of remains so that we could assure the families that there was absolutely nothing to bring back uh, because it was very important to them if there was anything they wanted to bring it back for proper internment. Um, so that was all, all very, very interesting and successful. We also raised a, a number of artifacts, the most prominent being a four-ton piece of the, of the hull. For those of you that are familiar with submarines, uh, it's what we would today call the sail. Back then it was called a bridge fin, and that's the part that sticks up on the top of the of the hull. And that was, uh, had been blown off of the wreck when it imploded. So it was relatively intact, uh, at least the front part of it. And we recovered that piece, brought it up to the surface, returned it to Haifa, and now it stands as a memorial to the Re sailors. Recovering it is, makes it sound very easy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the recovery sure. process? Sure. The, uh, the, this, this is where the robotic vehicle comes in very handy. The, um, uh, the device, as I mentioned, has mechanical arms, and it, by, uh, operated by a very skilled 
video game player, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, sitting on the ship. Is, it, is there a time delay? Uh, not really. You're seeing the uh, speed of light stuff. Yeah the, yeah, the the signals are traveling through a fiber optic cable, mm-hmm. so that's instantaneous. Yeah. But two miles below, you're operating something that's ex- operating in a different environment than you are. I mean, you're on a ship that's rocking and rolling. You're looking at a monitor that's having a different kind of motion. It's a recipe for seasickness, mm-hmm. but somehow they do mm-hmm. it well, and they use uh, controllers similar to game-type controllers mm-hmm. to operate the mechanical arms. And with this device, uh, our operators attached a special, specially devised clamp that was uh, screwed down to strong points on the piece. And then to that was attached a synthetic line made of a, of a substance called Dyneema, which is a, uh, a synthetic that's sh- as strong as steel, but it's neutrally buoyant in water, so it doesn't weigh anything. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that the the cable that you have to tow this sonar ROV with weighs 10 or 12 or 13 tons. We, we didn't want to have to lift that as well. All right. So the Dyneema rope was, was good for that purpose. And uh, very carefully and slowly over the space of nine hours, this uh, piece was lifted carefully to the surface, um, winched onto the ship, and, uh, and brought home. Now, you know, you have to use a winch that is able to absorb the motion of the sea so you don't have these dynamic loads as well. And that's uh, a sophisticated piece of winching gear. Mm. And uh, I have to say it went a lot smoother than I could have imagined. Uh, and uh, Yeah, it's kind of a, a gamble, I think, when you know you got nine hours before you break the surface and hope that it's nice and calm by the time you get there. That's absolutely right. And the, the, the time we p- picked had good forecast, and we did it at night, so when the, the seas are normally mm. more calm, except in a storm, of course, and it all went well, but it, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you recognize that maybe it wasn't as easy as it sounds. <laughs> Having not been there, but I can, can just imagine, yes, yeah. not just grappling hooks. <laughs> so uh, we're talking with David Jordan, author of Never Forgotten, and uh, you've also shown me some other uh, uh, projects, we'll call them, <laughs> that you've been on. Uh, the amphoras video of those is amazing. Where those are in the Mediterranean also? Well, the the when we signed on, we were actually hired by government is, of Israel to do this uh, project. We recognized that we might find some other things in the Mediterranean. After all, the there there were uh, some thirty thousand ships sunk in World War II alone. Not all in the Mediterranean, of well, course. Well, the Mediterranean has been used for quite a few years. That's now. right. <laughs> And so we, we wrote in our contract that we would have permission to uh, study or have the rights to any other things we found. And one thing we found along the way was a, uh, that we initially thought might have been what we were looking for, but when we examined it with the ROV, uh, the word came back it was just an old ship. And uh, our Tom Detweiler, our operations leader out there, said, well, how old? Mm-hmm. And they said, pretty old. So he said, I'm going to take a look. And it turned out to be, upon examination, about 2,200 years old. Yeah. Uh, went down uh, somewhere around 200 B.C. It was presumably, according to the archaeologists, carrying a, a cargo of, of primarily wine. We believe from uh, some of the islands in, in, the, in, uh, in the area of Rhodes to, uh, they think, maybe the island of Kos, K-O-S, Probably to Alexandria. It was found in Egypt. It was, pro- it was found midway between the two on the direct line. Mm-hmm. 
And there's some very curious things about this. First of all, although the wood of the ship was completely gone, uh, as we would expect after so long, the critters and would, would consume that organic material, uh, the cargo, which was made of ceramic, what are known as amphora, or those jugs that you've seen, was uh, completely intact. And not only that, they were sitting, resting where they fell over 2,000 years ago. So the way the cargo was loaded and the, um, uh, as is referred to in archaeology terms, the provenance of the artifacts was, was not disturbed. Uh, if you find a shipwreck like this near shore, if you're lucky enough, it's been uh, buried, torn up, dredged over, maybe divers have scavenged it, and it's in pieces and scattered about. So you really can't learn as much as if you have a, an intact wreck. There was also the cookware... Uh, in the galley, um, the anchors, everything was where it was when it fell. Very eerie to see this ship-shaped yeah. uh, uh, collection of thousands of amphora. Over 2,000 years old. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'd like to think it was taking wine to Cleopatra, but uh, <laughs> I, I think the air is a little bit off. But Yeah, <laughs> yeah but... From, from here, it's pretty hard to tell. Yeah. The disadvantage, of course, is it is 10,000 feet down, and it is uh, a day's sail from the nearest port, so very expensive to study. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I would love to go back and, and do some more work on it someday. Mm. Well, talk about future things, too. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's go to Amelia. Well, our every uh, deep-sea quest that we have uh, set out to do has succeeded. Uh, in fact, we've succeeded on our first attempt, first mission. Uh, the hardest one that we've ever tried is to find Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Electra, which uh, she went down with with her uh, navigator Fred Noonan, uh, trying to find, desperately trying to find Howland Island, a little speck in the Pacific, which is her uh, next to the last stop before finishing her round-the-world trip in the 1930s. And uh, we... We were actually introduced to this project by WGBH in Boston, the folks at DuNova. They were interested in doing a story about some research that had been done on this and were looking for our validation in the navigation analysis. And uh, we, we realized that the, the story was so compelling and the information, although sparse, was uh, so believable that we thought we might be able to find it. And so we set about to calculate where that wreck might be, that aircraft might be. Uh, unfortunately, it's in uh, water depths approaching 20,000 feet, so it's at the limit of our capability. In an area of the world that's so remote that it takes a week to get there from Hawaii, and, uh, and as you find if you have any kind of problem or even worse, an emergency, in, in our second expedition we had a medical emergency, it took us almost three days to get to a place that we could medevac someone off off uh, mm -hmm. the ship. So um, it's a very difficult and expensive undertaking. We went out in 2002, and we searched about 600 square miles, which, um, if any of you know your geography, is about half the acreage of the state of Rhode Island, um, at one meter resolution. And other than a few holes, there's some, some interesting terrain down there, mostly flat, but there's some underwater volcanoes that we were privileged to be the first humans to see. These are uh, making the, the pillow lava kind of thing? Well, or are they, they the yes. smoke, smoking vent things? 
These are not the smoking vents of the mid-ocean ridges. These are ancient uh, features that have uh, are responsible for the seamounts that you see all around the Pacific that make mm-hmm. islands. But some of them don't quite make it to the surface or even far off the bottom, and they're they're just little bumps with craters in the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we uh, we had uh, that first mission ended after quite a bit of time and 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 uh, and collection of data with a, a winch failure. We went back out again in 2006, and we collected another 600 square miles, but had to quit for a medical emergency, which worked out okay in the end, but we're trying to get back out one more time to finish the job. Yeah, well, <laughs> sounds like to-be-continued kind yes. of story. Yes, <laughs> I hope so. I, I'm intrigued. It sounds like another book in the works there, too. That's great. Um, so when you find an underwater volcano, be the first person, do you get to name it? Uh, boy, you have good questions. Um, we, we did look into that because we thought, well, we're the first people. We ought to have some say in it. And, um, and maybe we thought, gee, we'll even name it after, uh, say, an investor or sponsor, somebody that might want to contribute and get recognition. And there is a process to go through this with the, with the government to get a, a feature officially named. Uh, one disadvantage is they like it to be named after someone who's deceased. And that's not a that's not a good. Uh, it, it, it's not not a very good um, uh, calling card for for an investor. But uh, so yes, we do have. Uh, we've created probably one of the largest, if not the largest, contiguous detailed map of the deep sea in in this project. And uh, I, I suspect someday, uh, when when the geologists get their hands on it, it'll it'll be it'll appear on maps with names. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> A little. Well, we're just about time to uh, wrap up Boat Talk. Another hour has sailed by like it usually does on Boat Talk. It awfully goes awfully fast. It does. <laughs> um, while we still have time, I want to give you your contact information one more time for uh, Nauticos. And yes, uh, if you want to contact me, the best way is on the web at nauticos.com, N-A-U-T-I-C-O-S.com, or the book, Never Forgotten, uh, that would be DakarNeverForgotten.com, D-A-K-A-R, Never Forgotten, all, all one right. word. All right. Well, go to your local bookstore and ask for that book, Never Forgotten. This sounds very intriguing. Well, thank you, David. It's been a, been a real treat having you on Boat Talk. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, and I, and I hope some of your listeners do go pick up the book. Right. And maybe we'll have you back after the uh, Amelia story I'd be develops. delighted to come. Well, <laughs> this is Alan Sprague for Boat Talk. Thanks for... Uh, All you folks uh, listening, and remember, uh, we are still trying to keep WERU in our fundraising. If you can contribute a little bit to keep this this show and others on this station going, please give us a call. One, no, call the office number. That is 469-6600 and talk with Chris. Stay tuned for Jim Pahoosh coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, 89.9, 102.9 in Bangor. This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, Gamble and Hunter... WERU invites you to join us for a town.